The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Get healthy and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Arguably the best thing that I've done during lockdown is take a yoga teacher training class via Zoom. It's actually just started and I have something like 192 more hours stretched out ahead of me. And I love it to pieces because yoga intersects with veganism, as do so many other wonderful aspects of life. This is particularly true in the teaching of ahimsa. We see that word a lot in vegan circles and it technically means non-killing or non-violence. But I just want to open this morning with a little ahimsa story that I learned from the late Professor Rin Berry, arguably the historian of note of the vegetarian, vegan, and raw food movements. Professor Berry would say that if you were a true yogi and you were in the woods and a hunter came by and said, which way did the deer go? If you had indeed seen the deer, you would be perfectly within your rights to turn from the teaching that calls for honesty and point in the opposite direction. And if it so happened that you were able to steal that hunter's arrows or bow, you could set aside the teaching that calls for non-stealing because ahimsa, non-violence, is the crowning virtue. And in fact, if situations merited that you were able to seduce the hunter. You could temporarily set aside even the teaching that calls for sexual purity because ahimsa, saving the life of a living being, is the most noble action that one can take. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Program. Thank you for indulging me in that little story. I love stories. I love hearing them. I love telling them. We are a storytelling species. I think that's how we learn and that's how we connect. And that's one of the ways that we remember. 
Also, I wanted to tell a yoga kind of story because my guest today comes from India, that incredible country that gave us yoga and, and through which vegetarianism made its way to the Western world. My guest is Nivi Jaswal. She has a BA in clinical psychology and MBA in behavioral marketing and over 15 years international corporate experience. And she's worked in so many parts of the corporate world, consumer goods, life sciences, research. She has lived and worked in seven different countries and visited 47. My head spins. <laughs> Nivi is a board certified health and wellness coach and a lifestyle medicine coach certified by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. She also runs the Versa Foundation, a Massachusetts based nonprofit with its main field operations in India. Her nonprofit work focuses on a whole foods plant based lifestyle intervention for underserved communities, such as rural women, artisans, and seniors suffering from chronic illness. Welcome, Nivi. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Victoria. Well, it's a pleasure to speak with you. And in fact, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I met you when you uh, spoke in New York City. You were actually talking about Ayurveda, which is uh, another interest of mine. And you have such a fascinating health story. You're the only person either that I know or who I know and that admits it, that they got really, really sick from keto. Do tell. All righty. Okay. So, well, the tipping point of my story um, came when I was still participating in um, the, the corporate world. And this was back in March 2015. Um, I was in Hong Kong for a workshop and it was for one of the largest personal care beauty brands in the world. And uh, as far as I recall, it was us trying to huddle in a room and trying our best to figure out how to sell skin lightening creams to women by zooming into imaginary wrinkles and fine lines on their skin, gaslighting them into believing what they saw should not be acceptable, and then sugarcoating it with terms such as self-esteem, self-confidence, empowerment, and, and you know all the while ensuring that we were increasing profitability of the brand. Um, well, that day, I had had only espressos and I was munching on, on some nuts. I was stressed out because of this workshop. And when it ended at 5 p.m., I declined my team's offer to go join them for dinner. Instead, I headed straight back to my hotel room. And I literally woke up or came back to consciousness 30 minutes after having entered my hotel room. I to this date, don't know what happened. Um, I do know it was just me. I found myself laying on the ground and uh, my heart rate was really fast. Um, I had an app that measured my heart rate on my phone and it showed 166 beats per minute. Wow. And that was cause enough for me to basically cancel my engagement, hop on a flight. I was based in Singapore at the time. And I flew back from Hong Kong to Singapore, which is a short four-hour flight, and checked myself into a hospital. They ran top-to-toe tests and um, pronounced me pre-diabetic, dangerously tachycardic. Tachycardia means abnormally high resting heart rate. Um, I had signs of polycystic ovarian syndrome. My thyroid was suppressed, so I had hypothyroidism. 
and um and I yeah and and my total cholesterol level was really out of bounds so So, and Nivy you weren't like 64 at this time no I was 35 and I was you know um, I, I and I and I told myself that I was really healthy. I didn't have any self-affixed label at that point in time that I could be even marginally, you know, in in not good health. I, I thought that I was, you know, participating in the health and beauty care industry. I was part of the life sciences industry, et cetera. And I thought I was spreading the word and message of health to everyone. And overnight, I was a patient. Um, yeah, so so that was that was like a snapshot of of my uh, short story, Victoria. But obviously, um, this is chronic illness, and chronic illness just doesn't appear overnight. Um, I, I looked into my my health history, and you know there are certain snippets, or shall shall we call them red flags, that were already always there. Um, at the age of 10, my dad was um, told that he was uh, a diabetic when I was 10 years old. And I remember there was a certain fear that sort of settled inside my mind and body at that point in time. And I told myself, oh, diabetes is something that I must never get. This is something I should never have. And, and yet all the wisdom and science around my dad at that point in time um, had words like, oh, this is genetic, you know, one or both of your kids will likely get it. And, and I, I felt that given that I, you know, temperamentally, I'm very similar to my dad, a lot of people and, uh, you know, elders around in the family said, hmm, you know, between the two of these, I think Nivi's the one who's going to become <laughs> diabetic. So, so you can well imagine there's this power of suggestion and there is a power of self-suggestion that one internalizes. Well, sure enough, by the age of 15, I was, um, suffering from debilitating migraines. Now I know they were dairy-induced. I come from a part of India, northwestern India. My home state is Punjab, and it is where the dairy revolution happened um, in in that part of the world. So dairy overflew or or overflowed in in, in the family. And uh, I had migraines. By the time I was 18, um, I had lost Two grandparents, both to cancer, one to breast cancer, another to prostate cancer, and a grand aunt who I was very attached to, to stroke. Um, And then by the age of 25, what I now know was dysbiosis-induced depression. I was diagnosed with that, battled with that for almost a whole year. Um, and then I suffered a neck injury, probably because of, you know, uh, my bones might have been impacted. And, and obviously there was another, you know, um, mishap with prescription, uh, uh, wrong prescription that was involved. And at, at age 32, I found myself partially paralyzed waist downwards um, for almost two weeks. And then at age 35, this episode in Hong Kong happened. So through all this time, I still continued to believe that, you know, I was working for the healthcare industry. I knew everything that I needed to know about health. And I had started the ketogenic diet um, four years prior to 2015. Um, So when I was around 31, and uh, that led me to a very dark place. Wow, that this is so fascinating because so many people are doing that with the idea that they're helping themselves 
And, you know, I, I'm still looking at it through the Ahimsa lens. How can we really help ourselves by doing something which harms so many others? But that's certainly not where, uh, where many people are thinking. So what happened? How did you get to be okay now? Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it was a classic case where I wasn't content just by going to the doctor and following the whole host of medicines that they wanted to put me on. And, and the reason for that was because I had this assumption in my head and my heart, and I truly believed it, that I was participating in the healthcare revolution in the world, that I was you know, following in um, the advice of, um, you know, so many doctors who are wed to keto and that this couldn't be happening to me. So there was a lot of cognitive dissonance. And and we know that, um, you know, when there is a lot of chaos, there is a possibility of some creative thinking. And, uh, and, and I started searching for answers. Um, the answers appeared in the form of many teachers, many coaches, many gurus, many different programs, and many books. And one of those books was the China Study. One of those coaches was um, actually a precision nutrition coach. She's based in England, and uh, you know we, we connected through the program MasteringDiabetes.org, or another organization that I connected with. And within six months of having gone whole foods, plant-based oil-free, I was able to reverse my symptoms. And I was, a, I was given a clean shit of health. Wow. That's, that is exciting. So as you look out onto the world of health and the many interpretations of that, many of which are not plant-based, you have all this corporate experience around the world. How can you take some of those techniques and strategies that you were using to sell products for some of the biggest companies on earth and use those to sell a whole foods vegan diet? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question, um, uh, Victoria. You know, uh, to answer that, I, I really want to take a, take, uh, want us to take a step back and, and think about what is the structure using which these corporations are able to sell literally innocuous products like soap, soup, shampoo, cream, and, and make us believe that they're literally the best, you know, offerings around the world. Um, when I, uh, you know, graduated from business school and I started working for this really large organization, um, uh, they're an amazing employer. They're called Unilever, largest employer, um, you know, in their segment in uh, India at the time back in 2004, I felt I had arrived and I had, um, you know, graduated from one university and um, uh, enrolled into another because Unilever are called this big marketing university and, and they'll teach you everything that's there to know about marketing and to do it at scale and to do it with purpose, not just um, for profit. And and the, the top two things were um, segmentation, targeting, positioning, um, and and really understanding what the brand value proposition of what you're trying to sell is, and and these two concepts ruled my life during the time that I was with them and with other companies. And how does this brand value proposition really work? What is the structure? And the structure is pretty simple. The structure is cast a doubt, provide a solution, 
use language of empowerment to sell that dream and use powerful visuals of how paradise might look like. So for instance, you're trying to sell antibacterial soap. You capitalize upon every mother's fear of her child falling sick. Um, or you want to ch sell chocolate, you capitalize on pester power. If you you know want to sell skin lightening cream, you talk about how she can get the man, get the job, and you know get whatever she desires if she had lighter skin. Now, one of the big things that I realized is that what gives power to marketeers and sales managers and you know all the different people employed by this huge game that the food system is, as Dr. Shailesh Rao, um, who you know of and you know, who I'm really, truly inspired by, he talks about how this is a game that we've constructed. It's a man-made game with ego at the heart of it. Um, they, they don't do it alone. They don't do it you know, just by themselves. They have this brand value proposition of casting it out, providing a solution, use language of empowerment, smokes and mirrors, not just for their products, but also for their talent strategy. They employ that in their employee brand strategy on campus, um, internal employee messaging and, and so on. And if you thought that governments are detectives that want to collect all this information about people, um, you know, the reality is that these consumer goods companies are companies that have zip code level data on consumer trends. And every year, if you're a brand manager, brand director, you're, you're consuming all that data and, and you know more about your consumer than an average doctor knows about their patient. Now, when we talk about utilizing that model um, into the progression or the, the evolution of practice of lifestyle medicine or practice of behavior change or practice of, you know, spreading the word of whole foods plant-based um, knowledge all over the world. You have to understand and you have to know what and who you're up against. And currently with, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a newbie in the, in the plant-based movement, obviously, but with whatever little I've seen, I know that there is, uh, even within lifestyle medicine, there is a prescription mindset, you know, so, so doctors are moving into getting board certified in lifestyle medicine and they say, alrighty, I have these five pillars, you know, sleep, uh, you know, um, good food, primarily plant-based and, and so on and exercise and so on. And I'm going to our exit. And this RXing mindset is is not, you know, really the only thing that is going to help us, um, uh, if I may say, wage a war of ahimsa against the propagators of ahimsa. Um, a lot of oxymorons right there, which is basically this big uh, processed food, beverage, personal care industry. So um, there are several structures that I see in the whole foods plant-based movement. One, I see that there is this RX movement. And there are some people who are combining that with a coaching mindset. So which involves, I will provide you knowledge, I will you know, um, teach you how to cook, and I will also guide you using coaching techniques like motivational interviewing, appreciative inquiry, and then help you achieve success. Now, the big flaw is that a lot of these approaches are one person, one heart at a time, one small group at a time. And who you're really up against with that corporation mindset are people who are doing behavior change at scale in large communities at large, you know, at, uh, at a country level. So um, the, the big thing, the big nut to crack for the whole foods plant-based movement is 
somehow get into professionally designing innovative behavior change products and services that are not only engaging and sustainable, but are also priced lower than the next addictive fast food meal promised by the corporation. And um, there are some pilot projects that I'm already running where, you know, we're actually trying to pilot some of these models. Um, You've uh, mentioned earlier about Versa, and Versa is very close to my heart. My mom and I, we started this organization in um, September 2016, and uh, we're an independent member organization with uh, Plant Pure Communities, which is a large um, uh, in a nonprofit organization. And what we've been doing is we've been running nutritional interventions that are designed with a certain behavior change um, you know, a methodology in mind for artisanal communities. Uh, we've also uh, tried to do, try to replicate some of these big corporation talent strategies by doing campus connects. Um, just last year, uh, my mother represented our organization at a very large university in India, and there were 200 to 250 students in attendance. And we spoke about wellness, we spoke about nutrition, we spoke about potentially um, having them as volunteers come help us with the, artis the artisanal interventions. Um, uh, I also run a project uh, for Mayo Clinic, uh, that is my uh, alma mater, for Mayo Clinic coaching program grads. It's called the Coachpreneur uh, Project. And, and the conversations we're having over there is, how do you, for instance, coming up June 12th, how do you product design gratitude? You know, so you take a concept, which we all know is great. Eating plants, great. Be grateful, great. However, how are you going to product design it in a way that you can scale it up and you can ensure that, you know, the bullet hits its mark? You'll pardon me for using all these non-ahimsic um, metaphors. Um, uh, yeah, so, so you know, another example, uh, Victoria's a project that I've just concluded uh, was with collaboration uh, with uh, India's largest plant-based advocacy organization. They're called Sharan. And using a creative professional, uh, we created their Pinterest handle from scratch. And, and there are six Hundred recipes that have finally been very aesthetically executed, available for free. Anyone who wants to go and you know have a look at them. Um, so, so these are different um, flames, if if you like, that I've been trying to light in whatever capacity I have, in with different types of target audiences, trying to figure out. How is it that we can bring some systems approach, bring a design thinking approach, bring a product and service innovation mindset um, to the whole foods plant-based movement? Well, I think that with all the many ways people are coming at this, you know, we, we have marketers, we have entertainers, we have the one-on-one, the, -on -one, the physicians and the coaches. I think if we all just stick with this in a single pointed way and know that this is the most important thing that any of us could be doing, I think we're going to get the word out. I'm very excited right now to be part of the uh, meat boycott <laughs> that uh, the League of United uh, Latin American Citizens uh, started and now lots and lots of people are involved in that and I remember the the boycotts against South Africa and apartheid I just do not believe would have ever ended without those I even remember the the great boycott of Cesar Chavez and you know I was a teenager and to this day when somebody offers me grapes I have to think is it okay to eat these because for five years 
nobody that cared about other people or that cared about their own reputation would touch a grape. So hopefully, um, you know, it, it is opening up that way for this wonderful, wonderful way of eating. So tell us just as, as we go to break in the next three minutes, what's your life like now? I know you're very busy, but it seems like you're not as frantically busy as you describe your corporate life. How does that differ? Well, one of the big things, um, Victoria, has been to, um, for me to understand and internalize that fr- being frantically busy or not being frantically busy is, is not necessarily a bad thing, you know, and, and I've had to really, really settle with that and um, in, inside of my own heart. Um, whereas what I am busy with things are things that are aligned with my value system and that have purpose and meaning that are not harming either me or other people or other beings on the planet. And that is something that brings the most joy to me. And, and I'm constantly, you know, thinking of different ways of how to create different projects and, and uh, bring the news of whole foods, plant-based um, living and lifestyle medicine um, to different constituencies. So I'm very busy with a project, which I'm going to stay shushed about and not reveal too much, um, but it's focused on plant-based um, and is, is going to be targeting uh, COVID-19 impacted women in uh, the heart of New York City. But more on that soon. Ah, well, that's wonderful. <laughs> yes, you have one of those brains that uh, doesn't uh, doesn't miss a beat. So, so just very quickly, give us a, a, a two minute tour of your life and your uh, your diet. What what does your day look like? Maybe you'll only get to noon, but give us that much. So, um, I when I get up in the morning, one of the big things that I've trained myself to do is to do a quick meditation. I do not get out of my bed unless I've done my meditation. Usually lasts between 15 to 20 minutes, but gives me the perfect start to the day. Um, head over to do, you know, the business of the morning and then don my running shoes, go down to the gym. Very, very fortunate that even in quarantine times, I have an access to a gym. I get my 30 quick minutes in. This tells me that um, I've started my steps because if I don't start my steps in the morning, I'm pretty likely not to get to them, uh, you know, until it's late afternoon and by such time momentum wears off. Um, I break my fast typically between 11 a.m. to 11.30 because I do intermittent fasting. Um, My food's always either whole fruit or a green smoothie. I'm trying to be predominantly raw at this point. And and then I get to work. There are just so many calls and so many clients and so many different projects. I try to stand up while I'm trying to uh, do those calls. And, um, and yeah, and I need to stop you. So let's, (laughs) let's stop with standing up between calls. We're going to be going to our break now. Stay with us. There'll be more with Nervi Jaswal and how you can be radiantly healthy. Stay with us. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. So happy to have you here. If you want to know more about Nivi Joswell's work, then we'll have all those URLs and information on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. While you're there, do check out Meatless May and More. But May is almost over, so we're going to be changing the name (laughs) because all through the month of June, the Certified Vegan Lifestyle Coaches and Educators of Main Street Vegan Academy are offering absolutely free vegan coaching and resources. So if you have a question, if your mom has a question, if the person at work who keeps annoying you about protein has a question, they can get those questions answered personally via phone or email from a certified coach. If you just fill out the very short little form at um, MainStreetVegan.net. Also, big, big news in the world of Main Street Vegan. We have now added Zoom offerings for Main Street Vegan Academy. For the past eight years, almost 500 people in 29 countries have been certified vegan lifestyle coaches, but they had to come to New York City and spend a week. And it's wonderful and fabulous and magical, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's time out of your life. It uh, costs some money. Well, now we have two ways to make uh, getting your vegan lifestyle coach and educator certification more realistic for everybody, any location, any budget. So please check that out when you're over at MainStreetVegan.net. And finally, saving the best for last, we have a wonderful first-time sponsor for this episode. And I'm just thinking of asking you, don't you wish you could find a plant-based physician where you live? Now, if you're in Washington, D.C., that problem was solved long ago when Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine established the Barnard Clinic, where they combine medical care with the latest advances in prevention and nutrition. Well, here's the big news. (laughs) The Barnard Clinic is providing telehealth services now to people outside Washington, D.C. So if you are in California, New York, Virginia, Maryland, Missouri, Massachusetts, or Arizona, the Barnard Medical Center's physicians, nurse practitioners, and registered dietitians are there for you via telehealth. So whether you're looking for a wellness exam or check out a minor problem or address something more serious, here you go. Plant-based doctors and dietitians. The number is 202-527-7500. Now, if you're writing that down, 202-527-7500. And if you are out driving or, or running or walking your dog, All that contact info about the telehealth services from the Bernard Clinic will be on those very same show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So, cheers and uh, enjoy loving your doctor. Okay, back to my wonderful, radiant guest, Nui Jaswal. There are times I wish we could be video. Most times I wish, I'm glad we're not, (laughs) because I don't have to deal with makeup and all that. And yet, 
sometimes I, I just want to say you need to know this person. So you can find her online and you can get the more of the three-dimensional Nivy. So you are taking us through your day, Nivy, before we went to break. Finish us up with that. Okay, so where was I? I had gotten to my lunch. Um, um, it's always home-cooked, regardless of whether, you know, we're in shelter in place out here in Boston um, at this point or not. Um, try to home-cook as much as possible. Lots and lots of meal planning over the weekend with my wonderful husband, Sean. And, uh, and, and then I try to chunk my exercise. So... If you remember, I said 30 minutes on the treadmill in the morning, but then right around um, or after lunch, before I get started with some other calls, I, I want to ensure that I go down to the gym or have a yoga mat or something, either stretch myself out, do little exercises, um, do, you know, core exercises, et cetera, and, and put in about 20 minutes of that work. Um, and then do more calls, um, find five minute meditation breaks. Um, the weather's, uh, really amazing now. It's, it's getting to be sunnier. Um, so around 6 PM is when I would go out for a walk and, uh, sometimes my husband will join me and that is frequently turning out to be a 30 to 45 minute walk. And we come back, um, have an early dinner. Uh, switch our phones off, have conversation, and uh, head to bed between 10 and 10.30. So that's my day. That's a lovely day. That's a lifestyle medicine day with a, a touch of Ayurveda, I can tell. <laughs> I always love to hear how people live, especially people who are doing it so well. So, Nivi, I'm, I'm fascinated by your Indian heritage, and there are lots of of surprises about India. I think particularly uh, vegans are, are so surprised that uh, for a country known for revering cows, India is the world's biggest leather exporter. I mean, there, there are, are contradictions. So help us out. How is vegetarianism and then veganism, how are these perceived in India today? Um, Vegetarian India is a vegetarian country predominantly, and and vegetarianism is um, highly correlated to what's called um, the Hindu way of life. And uh, so, when people think of meat eating or meat eaters or people who are often called non-vegetarians, and and that's the distinction that most Indians you know have uh, go to a restaurant in India. It will either be a vegetarian restaurant or it will be a non-vegetarian restaurant. Um, and, and I think that there are forces of speciesism and carnism at play when people um, smugly believe that because they're vegetarian, they're better than people who are non-vegetarian, people who eat meat. And, and, and they don't realize often the cruelty that goes into the dairy industry. Or, or they turn a blind eye to it because they've become apathetic to it. You know, it's it's the apathy in general and also plain ignorance. Not a lot of people have visited, um, and you know, a dairy farm. And, and those who have probably have been to smaller farms where they're uh, repeatedly reassured that, you know, uh, before we steal their milk, we actually kiss them. Oh, that's not very different uh, <laughs> in in this country either. So how about the health? Uh, are, are people in India healthier than in the States or 
about the same? Um, well, you know, nobody could escape the, the big game of the food systems, uh, you know, that we've, we've created all over the world, right? So, so the forces of the, the corporation have reached India. And, and I'm going to actually start with a little bit of history. And I think that a lot of people, you know, human memory tends to be really short. And, and we remember things that have either happened in our lifetime or maybe, you know, were sufficiently large enough, like the world wars to have happened or whatever. We conveniently forget some of the daily things that become part of our life, like a glass of milk. How did it even get to my table? Or the, the chicken leg that somebody is having or KFC, how did it even come about? You know, so a little dose of history, I, I think is really important, especially because when we talk about India, it's an ancient civilization, ancient philosophy of ahimsa, of, um, you know, the divine feminine, and, and all of those things that um, come from this culture. And yet, it is in the situation where most of the world is in today. So, so let's look at um, a little bit of history. Let's look at a little bit of the snapshot of India uh, at this point. When we look at the disease snapshot of India, um, there was a big study that was conducted, uh, the Eat Lancet study, which I'm sure a lot of the viewers are aware of. Um, there's also the disease burden, global burden of disease study, and, and stats are published online, public domain. Anyone can go and see them. When we look at the top, killers or top uh, causes of death in India at this point in time, they're no different than the United States. Cardiovascular disease tops uh, the list. There's type 2 diabetes, respiratory illnesses. Um, interestingly, there is both pulmonary tuberculosis as well as zoonotic tuberculosis. Now, tuberculosis, which is non-pulmonary, is actually something that is known to have jumped from the bovine species into uh, into humans. So India, you know, has it houses 12% of the global livestock of, of the world, um, is number one producer of milk, number two producer of fish, number three producer of eggs, number four producer of chicken, and number five producer and exporter of meat. And 54% of it is red meat. So a lot of people don't really know that as India has been progressing and has, as the forces of industrialization, intensive animal agriculture, intensive hybridization of seeds and monocropping have spread um, to India as well. And, and the economy has actually increased and you know become uh, really, really big. That with that, um, the same uh, diseases have taken root in India as well. Um, when we talk about history, it's important for us to think that while the concept and you know the notion of philosophy of ahimsa originated from India, or um, uh, Ayurveda originated in India, the Bhagavad Gita was the first to talk about how to eat uh, like a vegan, um, although they had obviously different names, they, they called it the sattvic way of eating or the truthful way of eating. Um, there were forces of colonialism that have shaped the modern Indian psyche. And, and I'm actually going to refer to, um, and I'm gonna quote verbatim, um, Lord Macaulay, his uh, you know address to the British Parliament on February second, eighteen thirty-five, and he said something really interesting about India and his observations about India. And he said, "I have travelled across the length and breadth of India, and I have not seen one person who is a beggar, who is a thief, 
such wealth I have seen in this country, such high moral values, people of such caliber, that I do not think we would ever conquer this country unless we break the very backbone of this nation, which is her spiritual and cultural heritage. And therefore, I propose that we replace her old and ancient education system, replace her culture, for if the Indians think that all that is foreign and English is good and greater than their own worth, they will lose their self-esteem, their native culture, and they will become what we want them, a truly dominated nation. So, so Victoria, this is what Macaulay, Lord Macaulay said, and the forces of colonialism um, really are, you know, shaped by the conversations of colonialism and, and a colonizer, either it's a country or, or it's a person, you know, seeking to dominate another person. Um, it's always a conversation where the person's not talking to the other person. They're always talking at the other person. And, and with years and years, 200 years of being talked at, the shape of the Indian psyche has become somewhat of a mishmash where there is a lot of um, practice of, or, or let's say notional or religious or ritualistic practice of um, cow worship and ahimsa and, and all of those things by way of scripture. But when it comes to work, when it comes to daily living, when it comes to daily cuisine, what we've seen is that there has been a departure from, from these notions and, and, and even an understanding of, of these notions. The protein hypothesis obviously played a big role. Um, in 1965, uh, just about you know um, 18 years after or 20 years after India had achieved its independence from British rule, the National Dairy Development Board was set up. And the reason I bring this up is because as the founding fathers of modern-day India started to build the country from ground up, they believed in the protein hypothesis, which was the predominant you know, nutritional force that was shaping the rest of the world, especially after World War II. So they said that India is a vegetarian country predominantly. We're never going to be consuming red meat or enough of poultry and eggs and so on. Uh, which has since, by the way, been proven wrong. But back in the day, they said dairy is going to save India. Dairy is going to be the protein backbone for Indian population and its health. My generation, I was born in 1980, towards the end of it. I was born December 1980. By the time it was 1986, this huge government-funded program, stimulus was provided by, um, you know, the European Economic Community, uh, the World Health, International Monetary Fund gave India a huge loan. India became dairy self-sufficient. And if you look at people in my generation, I'm coming up to 40, the average onset, the first time onset of type 2 diabetes in India is 42 and a half years of age, which means that my generation was fed on affordable, easily accessible, a huge big supply of dairy for the first time ever. And yet, what the marketeers in the dairy industry would have us believe in South Asia and, you know, as is true for the rest of the world, but maybe even more so true about South Asia is they bank upon religious tradition, they bank upon myth and legend, they bank upon the Krishna mythology, the Krishna symbolism, etc., to peddle the world's most legal narcotic, you know, uh, which is dairy.
and and to uh, you know put more add add more fuel to the fire the colonial mindset really uh, dictates the pricing strategy that is followed by multinational companies. And as uh, you know, we, we talked about my own history with business and brands, I know that when a McDonald's or a Unilever or a Procter & Gamble or a Coca-Cola corporation, when they're thinking of launching new brands and new products and new formulations in South Asia or popularly called the DNA markets, which is developing and emerging markets, they're always thinking and leveraging that colonial mindset, and they launch um, these new products at premium prices. Now, when you launch something at an expensive price point, at a higher price point, you're indirectly instilling once again that this is better, and because it's better, it must cost more. And when you're achieving um, you know, you're moving up the socioeconomic ladder, the economy is doing really well, your discretionary spending is up, per capita incomes are up. What do people, what do consumers gravitate towards? They are going to gravitate toward having more of the dairy that they couldn't have, their previous generations couldn't have, having more of foods that are processed, beverages that are processed, that their previous generations couldn't or you know, that they didn't have as their child and they would want to bring all those goodies just because they're expensive, because they're foreign, because somebody else is telling them that they're healthy for them. And, and the latest is, as latest as um, May 22nd, Victoria, um, the Indian market uh, was legally opened for USA poultry and eggs exporters. Um, and we know that in the US, you know, because of the rise of plant-based movement, um, the poultry, eggs, and chicken have actually seen decline for the first time in the last 30 years. Um, no wonder they're finding new pastures for growth and incremental revenue and profit. And on May 22nd, the USA Poultry and Eggs Exporters Council launched first of their web series on Zoom, which is an unprecedented uh, you know, um, a level of direct-to-consumer advertising and communication where purportedly they were teaching Indians about the protein insufficiency in the Indian population and how most Indians do not know the definition of protein and how animal protein is the best way to go. So, so there you have it, you know. Uh, when we look at the history, when we look at some of the ways in which that colonial mindset continues to operate and how companies, corporations try to leverage and write that um, mindset, how uh, a country that gave us ahimsa, that gave us Ayurveda, that gave us yoga, that gave us the sattvic eating um, modality um, has become vulnerable to that power of colonial suggestion. Wow. So for people who don't know, describe a sattvic and the other gunas as they apply to food. Right. Okay. So chapter 17 of the Bhagavad Gita, which is an amazing, amazing, amazing book. Um, Lord Krishna, when he's talking to Arjuna and, and the battle scene, you know, is, is the context, the background context of this amazing um, epic poem. Lord Krishna talks about three qualities or three gunas in people. And he talks about them as forces that, um, you know, play this tug of war in each of us. One is sattvic, which is the force of truth and light. Um, the number second one is rajsic, which is the force of desire or greed or domination or aggression. 
And the third one is tamsik, which is the force or the energy of lethargy or laziness or, you know, something that is rotting. And, and he talks about it in philosophical ways. He talks about, well, if somebody wants to have a sattvic way of life, the energy that they consume, both in the form of food and nutrition as well as thought, if it's sattvic in nature, if it's juicy, if it's full of antioxidants, if it's full of freshness, then they are going to lead a sattvic way of life. And that will be reflected in their body, in their mind, in their thoughts, in their words, in the purpose that they seek to um, have their life um, you know, be molded by. And if somebody wants to have a very aggressive, violent, stimulating life, then rajasic elements, for instance, animal protein, lots and lots of dairy, um, lots of sugar, all of these things would stimulate that person um, and, and they would have that consequence. Now, the big thing around um, Lord Krishna's sayings, especially in the Bhagavad Gita, they are observations and, and they are recommendations and the, it's, it's open source. It doesn't mandate that you must be, you should, you should do this. You know, the sattvic is the way, et cetera, et cetera. It leaves it open for people to make their choice. And if somebody wants to choose tamsic food, which is rotting food, hyper-processed in modern terms, it's basically the hyper-processed food. It's the pizza that, you know, Pizza Hut delivers and, and extremely fried chicken, which, um, you know, KFC delivers. And God knows how long those, those frozen wings have been, you know, sitting uh, uh, in, in their pantry. All of those things. If people choose that, then you have to um, take responsibility for those consequences. But if you choose sattvic, then the consequences are gifts that not only do you enjoy, but also your family, your community, and your country at large. Well, that's beautiful. One of my teachers was talking about uh, the gunas this weekend and was saying that to live a sattvic life, that this life that's just I think of it as elevated. I think, you know, you're either walking down the street and you're bent over and the world is awful or you're running like crazy trying to catch up or you're just kind of floating. And he was saying that that sattvic choice of, of, of foods and, and attitudes and entertainments doesn't make us holy, but it forms the matrix on which holiness can exist. So I'm going to carry that one around for a while. So in our last few minutes, Nivi, I know that you are really focusing on the work that you do with women. And uh, men are wonderful, and uh, God bless them. But this particular outreach is feminine. How come? Well, one of the big things that I believe is if you teach a woman, if you educate a woman, if you make a woman aware, because she has this amazing nurturing potential in her, the nucleus of a woman is to care, and, and she's a nurturer, then you're impacting not just her soul and her body and her mind, you're also impacting her family, you're impacting the entire village, you're impacting the entire community. And, and not to say that men don't have that capacity or you know they don't create and build systems, um, but I just feel that women are very naturally inclined to be caregivers. And, uh, and, and 
one of the big learnings for me has been this amazing collaboration, as I mentioned, with the Versa Foundation with my mother. And my mother is an anthropologist and, you know, she's devoted her entire life um, at work and even after um, a retirement uh, with igniting entrepreneurial, um, you know, mindset in women that are, that belong to disadvantaged groups. So it was very natural. It was a very natural flow for me, um, to, to pick up this as a target audience to, to really go and seek out these artisans, um, you know, practitioners of an old dying art, folk art, and, and to really see that if we were to give them the stimulus of plant-based wellness, where does it travel? And and uh, in the last three years, what we realized is that it hasn't just stopped with these women. Women um, are are you know nodal connectors. They act like bridges. Uh, they they're responsible for much of the you know oral transmission of lots of culture and folk art and folk dances, etc. You know since times immemorial. Then why not leverage that channel to spread the plant based word uh, based word? Why world. not? And you are doing it. I love it that you're working with your mother. That that's a very, very powerful connection when you've got uh, two generations of, of woman power working for something really good. So thank you so much, Nivi Jaswal. Do look her up, everybody. She has so much to share. You can find the Versa story, V-I-R-S-A, on Facebook. You can check out the Versa Foundation and go to your show notes at MainStreetVegan.net and you'll just find out practically everything. Thanks to you so much for listening. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. And um, by the way, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.